Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. Today's guest is William Vanderblumen, the founder and CEO of Vanderblumen, a Christian executive search firm. William has been able to combine over 15 years of ministry experience as a senior pastor with the best practices of executive search to provide churches with a unique offering, a deep understanding of local church work with the very best knowledge and practices of professional executive search. William also has experience as a manager in human resources in a Fortune 200 company, where he focused on integration of corporate culture and succession planning. All of these experiences have come together with his pastoral work to form a unique gift for helping churches and ministries connect with the right key people. Welcome to the podcast, William. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Good to see you. Uh, let's get started with, um, tell us a little more about your business and what it's known for. Uh, I don't know that it's known. Um, okay. It's a weird little niche. Uh, I am, I'll try and keep it short. I'm, I tell people I'm a recovering preacher, so I ramble on and on and on. But uh, uh, after being in the church world, and I got to serve one of the Frankly, in the Presbyterian Church world, one of the best Presbyterian churches in the country is here in Houston. It's First Presbyterian Church. Actually, Sam Houston attended there, so like it's it's been around, right? And they brought me in. I was 31 years old when I came here to be the senior pastor, which I'm afraid speaks to the scarcity of talent in the Presbyterian Church. But uh, <laughs> uh, I came in, and uh, you know, the only thing I had going for me because I was 31, I, I knew everything, which was awesome. You know? Right. Uh, but uh, uh, got to spend time there. Uh, they took about three years to find me, which is not really uncommon for a church that size. I left. They took about two and a half years to find my successor, and I only served there about six years. And it's a great church. It's not like some dysfunctional, can't find somebody to work here place. That was all kind of normal. Went to work after leaving First Presbyterian at a company that is no longer in existence, uh, Anadarko, that Houstonians will know and remember, and uh, served on the HR team and kind of got to be, uh, if you want to be ambitious, you could say I was uh, helping on the succession team, but the reality is I was the water boy for the succession team, so I got to watch, and they brought in a, this thing I'd never heard of called a search consultant. And it was uh, from Corn Ferry, which is the, the largest search firm in the world. And, you know, like 90, maybe 100 days later, they'd named their new CEO. And I just thought, okay, First Presbyterian Church, 11-year run, half the time they've got a pastor, half the time they're looking for a pastor. Big, giant oil company, 90 to 100 days. And I, and I, I thought, why in the world... Does the church not have as good a solution as the business world? And uh, Adrian and I had just gotten married. We blended our families with a Brady Bunch. And uh, <laughs> I came home from work and, and said, 
babe, I think I'm supposed to quit my job and start something new for churches. And she looked at me, I'll never forget, and said, that's because churches love new ideas, right? <laughs> and she should have said, so I'm, I'm kind of the dreamer in our marriage, and she's the realist. I have ideas. She makes sure there's money in the bank. Um, she should have said, go back to work. And she said, you know what? Let's give it a try. So she actually gets credit for starting, and that's a long-winded answer to say, we started by saying, could we help churches find their pastor more quickly and with higher quality. And since then, it's, it's grown quite a bit. Um, we work with, if there is, this is so bad, I, y'all are going to think I don't, there's no way this guy goes to church. But if there were a Fortune 500 in church, like the 500 largest churches, about 275 of them are clients of ours. So uh, we're known for a lot of work with some of the larger uh, churches, and unfortunately, when there's a bad headline out there about a pastor had to leave because we get the call, can you help clean up the mess and find the next? But but well over half our work, uh, probably like your client base, is for a normal-sized church. It's the people who are just trying to figure it out. It's 100, 200, 300 people that are getting together. We do a whole lot of work for people that are starting their own church, so kind of like you, uh, I think you guys love serial entrepreneurs. I think we, we do too. But, but helping um, people that are trying to help the Christian uh, idea and mindset move forward, we help them find their key steps. And now that has turned into Woodlands Christian Academy or uh, uh, Dave Ramsey might be a name. Some of you, he, he would be a very regular client. And for lack of a better way of saying it, the Chick-fil-A's of the world, you know, the companies that are uh, sort of owned by families that have a set of values that match the, the church. So we help churches find their pastor, schools that are Christian find their top staff, um, and then relief organizations. And, and a, a small part is in the for-profit world. That's great. So it sounds like the inspiration for you to start this was really founded in, in your faith. It, it was. It was. I, I just hate seeing the church stumble, and uh, I'm a big believer that if you get a really great church, it can bring more hope into a community and help change it. And you get enough good churches, you can change a city, and it, you know the chain goes on and on. And, it, and it, we serve every kind of denomination and type of church you can imagine, so it's not like just the Presbyterians or just the this or that. And, uh, yeah, very, very much a values-based idea for a business. Uh, but it's this line that I know you guys walk as well. It's like we've got to be a business, but we've got values that drive that business. So how do you how do you walk that tightrope? That's right. That's I think all businesses struggle with that uh, or can. What um, let me ask as far as uh, the entrepreneurial spirit that I guess you found maybe you didn't know you had. What how did that come about? How did you realize that you know, maybe deep down inside you had this you know burning desire to kind of start and grow a business? You know, I, I am probably much better at being an entrepreneur than I ever was at being a pastor. I, I always rock the boat too much, too many new ideas, and always a little bit too much of a know-it-all. But, like, I didn't want to go into ministry at all. I, I went to Wake Forest for my undergrad, entered my freshman year with, like, almost 40 hours of credit I'd earned during my senior year of high school at a state university. 
and was going to do an MBA in three years and then take over, you know, just the Western Hemisphere. Right. And, uh, you know, did a, did a really, really good job of doing what uh, uh, many people call a prodigal journey. Like I did everything. I know you've got girls. I've got five daughters. I know everything about the person they better not bring home because I was that guy. And uh, <laughs> like, like in high school, in high school, I was voted, uh, you know, the senior superlatives, right? Sure. I was most likely to succeed. Went to my 10-year reunion, now a pastor, and I unanimously, I was the only unanimous winner of any of the new superlatives. I was the unanimous winner of least likely career choice. <laughs> so <laughs> I think they were like, man, if they'll let him do pastoring, anybody can, because it's just ridiculous. So I was much more entrepreneur than pastor. And, and really only hit my stride as a pastor when I ran into what I would call some entrepreneurial pastors who were like, you know what? We could try to overpopulate heaven. Let's try and get more and more people involved. And so I, the entrepreneurial thing is much more natural for me than being than being a pastor and, and uh, uh, leading a church. So what are maybe one or two of the setbacks that you've encountered along the way in, in starting this company, and what did you do to overcome them? Uh, not having a good lawyer. <laughs> I mean, we really, have to pay you for that one. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, I mean, when we send contracts out and we send them to churches, the con- like every three years or so, I'll go back to our attorney and say, can you just simplify our contract, please? But every clause in our contract, I can tell you the story of the reason why that clause is there. That was that church that thought X, Y, Z. And and it took me forever to realize, you know, paying my attorney actually saves me money. <laughs> and you did not pay me to say that, but it, it really uh, was a major setback. I, I'm a philosophy major, no, philosophy minor, religion major. Uh, and Adrian helped me start the company. She's a biology major, so we had no business experience mm-hmm. and and no idea how many ramifications there are legally to things that you do. So um, I would say learning as you go on the business side and learning, um, man, you better think through the what if this goes sideways and build that into contracts and into service agreements and that sort of thing. And and no audience, he did not pay me to say that. I. I my dad's an attorney. My brother's an IP attorney. Um, ironically, we own the trademark for my last name now, and he's using it for his firm. I thought about sending him a cease and desist, but I don't. I don't think that go over very well. So. May not at Thanksgiving, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> so, when you think about what you're doing there at Vanderblumen, um, what would you describe as innovative? Yeah. Well. I didn't know how to do search, and I learned from a wonderful guy who had been with a big firm called Russell Reynolds, and he wanted to serve, uh, his, his niche was healthcare. He wanted to serve Christian hospitals, so he started a firm, and when I came to him to start learning search, he said, I can teach you the right way, but I can't really pay you much, and I'm not going to give you equity, and so I just kind of apprenticed under him in a way that worked out really well, but but... The coolest part was I didn't have to learn all the old, tired ways. The the search industry is a calcified old industry. I mean, they still use words like Rolodex, you know, (laughs) right? Like, what in the world is that? Your staff doesn't even know what that means. So um, I would say because we built it as we've gone, 
Um, we've done things in a way that's very innovative for our industry, enough so that we get invited to there's a bar association for search guys it's called the AESC and I get asked all the time to come up and tell us how you're doing this uh, like for instance we have completely separated our consultants who do search work from our sales team like in a traditional model you're concert- you go in as the consultant um, and then you try and sell the after work right you right. try and upsell to the next thing you try and extend the contract we've told our consultants you are not allowed to sell anything and that's partly because i couldn't stand when i was a pastor having a consultant coming in trying to upsell me so it's partly just my own hang up sure but for our clients it goes light years because they don't think like businesses they don't get that when you hire the consultant they're going to so that would be one uh, innovation. The biggest one probably is uh, early on, I just decided we're not going to do any outbound sales calls. We're not going to do any outbound calls to candidates to say, would you like to try a new job? Well, how in the world? Content became our king. So we said, instead of making cold calls, why don't we start a blog? Early on, like maybe... Ten years ago, we started a podcast when it was a unheard of thing. Um, we started using inbound software that tracks people, like what are they reading, and it scores them. So we know probably it's time to call them and ask them if they're ready to look for a job. Um, that that's been a pretty big innovation. We also started uh, <laughs> when I told Adrian I wanted to quit my job. It was the fall of 2008. So if you think back, like. Yeah, that's great timing. Brilliant, right? So, But it was also the same year Twitter started. And the same year Facebook came off college campuses and into the main ecosphere of life. So we just jumped on social media, like just right place, right time. Couldn't take credit for it. It total, like if you read the book Outliers, that's sort of our story. We just happened to be in the right place, right time. And it's led us to... Uh, instead of cold calling people about succession planning, we wrote a book on succession planning for churches. My mother thought she was going to have to buy all 12 copies, right? <laughs> um, and the publisher said, this is a great idea. If you sell 2,000 of them, it'll be awesome. Well, we sold 50,000 of them, and it's in every seminary library. So, like, instead of saying let's cold call people about let's say we're the people who wrote the book on it. We're going to do content that's helpful. We're going to give it all away. I think they're... 3,000 or so resources on our website that are completely free, and they, they bridge a gap. So I did my seminary at Princeton, and I graduated not knowing anything about how to run a staff meeting or a board meeting or fire somebody or hire somebody or what to pay them. So all this content bridges that gap for people, and, and we've tried to be innovative by saying we're going to provide free thought leadership and, and let that be the reason people trust us and want to come to us when it's time to do business. That's great. Sounds like the first part of that answer, a lot of data and analytics. Absolutely. And then I, I like the, um, I think I share the sentiment of providing good content to get people to um, look you up. Yeah. And, and find yeah. out more about you. Yeah. So I've read some of the stuff you've written before, and I know that uh, culture is important and uh, to you and your company. What what are the values or the culture that, that you have uh, created at Vanderblumen? Well, I, I think I can answer honestly when I say we have nine cultural values that really do describe who we are. Um, 
you know, early on when we were start up and bootstrap, we started winning all these best places to work awards. And we named our cultural values. We hired around and we wrote a whole book on it called Culture Wins. That's not church specific at all. I think you, if you go to Amazon, the only reason we named our firm Vanderblumen is because the search engine people said, William, your last name is so screwed up. You can misspell it a hundred ways into Google and, and it'll feed back to you. So you go to Amazon, type Vanderblumen however you want. You'll find the culture book. You can learn a lot uh, from what we learned. We studied 150 companies that were winning best places to work and how they built their culture. And then we realized some of the things we were doing were actually congruent. One of them is uh, figuring out who you really are when you're at your best, not who you want to be. But like, like one question, if you're listening today and you're like, we need to work on our culture, ask your staff to tell stories about what was a day you left the office saying, today we did a good thing. We really, like, this was a good day. People love that meeting, by the way. They don't look at their watch. They want to tell a story. Now, then you can ask the distilling question. Say, let's look at all these stories and say, all right, when we are functioning at our very best, what do we do as a team that's common to us, but uncommon to other teams around us? Like for us, it's, it's ridiculous responsiveness is one of our values. We get back to people really fast, partly because when I started the company, if you called me, if I didn't call you back, my family didn't eat. So <laughs> I called you really fast. There's, there's motivation. There. There's motivation. But now it's turned into a thing. Like we interview, I interviewed somebody today for a pretty high up role in our company and, and people are texting the poor lady like at weird hours just to see if she'll get back to them. So like we're interviewing around those values, but, but the key is what do you do when you're, when you're at your best that you actually do in studying for the book? I read about um, a lobby of a business office here in Houston and the four walls of the lobby had their four core values, right? Pretty cool. And one of them was integrity. And this was the lobby of the Enron office building. So, like, (laughs) so, you know, I mean, I can say one of our values is I'm going to win the NBA slam dunk contest. Not going to happen. Like, that's not who I am. So it's for us distilling who we are when we're at our very best. That's led to nine very specific values. We hire around it. We uh, we score people around it. Frankly, your bonus is determined by how well you're living out values. There's I don't know if you guys have it, but uh, I have a friend who writes for the New York Times who his most popular column ever was. What do you do with the brilliant jerk? Yeah. And everybody's got one. Right. It's the rainmaker that really brings in the money, but is an absolute rear end. And we said one way we're going to try and prevent that is. Your bonus is determined partly by how well you live out our nine core values. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say, you, know, you said you hire from culture. We say the same thing here. We also say we fire from culture. So Absolutely. If, if you get inconsistent with the cultural values, you can't work here. And Jack Welch in his book, Winning, calls that high performer, low culture cancer, right? It is. It he is. says you eradicate cancer. And I don't know that you can teach culture. Agreed. I, I think people either fit or they don't. And that's and, you know, I've said it many times. We're the weird one. You're not. So if you don't fit, it's probably our problem. Like not you. So you could be totally normal and not want to work for us. And that's fine. Yeah. One of our philosophies here, William, and I think it's similar to what you alluded to is uh, 
we are who we are. We're not trying to be the biggest law firm in the world, in our view, the best, but it just means this isn't the right place for you. There'll be somewhere else that you connect. Yeah. Yeah. And culture can be seasonal, Chris. Um, I, you know, I'll use ridiculous responsiveness. Our, we use this inbound software where you fill out a form saying, hey, could you give me a call? We're looking for a new headmaster, a new pastor, a new whatever the thing is. And we have a rule within U.S. time zones. International is a little harder, but you get back to it in 60 seconds if it's a waking hour in the U.S. That's it. And, and if you don't, that's out of bounds, right? Well, that worked great. And then one of our really great people had twins. And, you know, her husband decided to go be a missionary. And he's doing a great job. But she's like, I can't, like, I, I no longer fit the culture. And it gave her a really elegant way to leave. She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't hate us. It's just like, this is who you guys are. I can't be that right now. And that's okay. So I, I think people... Uh, sometimes mistake leaving a company with something went wrong. Sometimes culture is just seasonal. That's a good point. So when you think about your leadership style, how would you describe your leadership style, philosophy, uh, when you're you know, there in the office kind of leading the charge? Uh, I, I think it's changed over the years. I would say we're in our 13th year now, and we've probably had five or six companies. You know, I think if you're an entrepreneur and you think it's going to be the same every year, it's not. You're going to, if you, unless you just want to stay the same size, which is no fun. Uh, but as we've grown, I've had to shift and change. I did everything in the beginning, you know, knew every little detail of everything. My challenge as a leader as we have grown is, uh, so I have, I have one question annual review with my board. Okay. It's pass-fail test. This year, William, did you make yourself, yourself, less essential to the growth and running of this firm. That's, that's my job now. For the next 10 years, that's my job. Now, unfortunately, it's way easier for me to be unnecessary at our office than I'd like it to be. My ego would rather me be a little more essential. But, but, <laughs> but it's changed. I mean, it went from do everything to having five direct reports and then we went through a season where I just had one, and then we went back to four. And then, but, but I think uh, uh, the the thing I'm trying to do is there's a line in the scriptures that we uh, quoted quite a bit during the pandemic. Uh, there are the, is a little known verse. There are these men called the men of Issachar, and they were known for being able to read and understand their times. And I think, now, that's what I need to do as a leader. I need to look at our company. Where are we as a company now? And how do I make this the most sustainable, long-term growth thing I can? Sometimes that means rolling up my sleeves and doing things I don't want to. In the season we're in now, it's me handing things off more and more and decreasing every year so that I am not the lid for the company. That's good. Speaking of that, though, what trends are you seeing in your industry that you're uh – adapting to or, or guarding yeah. against to to ensure that long-term success? Uh, well, on the church side, which is the lion's share of what we do, uh, innovation, my granddad, who was a great businessman and a, a deacon in his local Baptist church, he told me, William, innovation in church isn't hard. I said, what do you mean? He said, the church is always behind. He said, I've heard this line other places, but he said, the church is great at raising the flag at sunset. So, you know, instead of the beginning of the day, right? So if you want to innovate in church, 
Just look at what the business world did as an innovation 40 years ago. That's your next innovation. So if we, we can kind of watch. And like what's happening in, our, in the church industry, if you will, I hope that doesn't offend your, your listeners, just like law firms, the bigger getting bigger, the smaller having the boutique, and the mid-sized guys better find something that makes them of serious value because it's getting harder and harder in the church world to be the mid-sized church. You're either a smaller church, and we're our big deal is uh, we provide clean water to places in the world that don't have it, or we're all about human trafficking prevention, you know, that kind of thing. Or you're a giant church, and you keep adding sites, and you keep adding. So bigger getting bigger, smaller having the boutique, midsize are, are in a, a tricky spot of having to figure out what makes us who we are. Yeah, it does sound very similar to what's going on just in business in general. Um, so let's talk about failure. How long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> Think about you know, one you can share with us that uh, the listeners can learn from, right? A failure that you've experienced and, and the learning you took from it and how that might help someone either avoid it or they may be dealing with it right now. You know, I think uh, I think if I understand your client base, uh, you've got a lot of entrepreneurs. And uh, entrepreneurs that are successful are um, – they have this ability to just almost bend reality to their will. You know, uh, one guy who was on my lead team for a long time, he's a wonderful guy. He's always been a number two. And he wrote, a, he wrote an article, you can Google it, Tim Stevens, How to Work for a Narcissist. <laughs> and, and he meant it, he, he said, you know, it's not a bad term. Everybody gets associated. Narcissism is actually somewhat of a gift and, and not like clinical narcissism, but Entrepreneurs really believe they have the idea that's going to change the world. And that's a beautiful thing. But I think all of my biggest failures have been shadow sides of my biggest strengths. And okay. so it, it, you can pick there. Ask my staff. There's lots of failures. Uh, you know, they're always a shadow side of strength. So many, many times it's my pride uh, or belief that I've got the right idea that gets in the way of doing what I'm trying to do now and decrease and let others have the ideas, let others do the, um, uh, the hard work. And that's led to a lot of failures. I, I think uh, another big failure came on the culture front. Uh, I came out of the church world where great churches, but very high control boards, you know, where you do it a certain way. I come out and start my own company. I'm like, we're going to be lax. We're going to have a Fun place to work. Well, fun's a great idea, but it makes for a lousy culture because it, it, it leads to having to hire people like you. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think uh, you know, there's, it's it's always the shadow side of my strength. So I guess if if you're saying what can listeners learn from, hey, go figure out what your top three strengths are, and then watch out for the shadow side. And and for me, it's it's pride and arrogance. I, my favorite. One of my favorite Ted Turner quotes, and there are a lot, uh, he said, you know, if I had a little more humility, I'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, you alluded to uh, a little bit earlier, uh, I think, about a mentor, at least in, in this business. And I just want to ask you, you know, in your professional life, maybe even before you started the business, any mentor or mentors that come to mind and what made them such a good mentor for you? Yeah, I you know I have had to figure everything out um, that I know how to do on my own, and when I say on my own, I mean 
most people who are pastors had a dad and a granddad and five uncles that were all pastors. I didn't have that. Like everything, I, my golf swing, I bought Jack Nicklaus golf my way, read a book, learned how to do it. I wanted to build a deck on my house. I bought a book and went and learned how to do it. But, but aside from that one trait, finding someone who's better at what I want to do than I am and saying, can I learn from you? Man, that's been everything. When I was a young pastor, I uh, I just went and found three mentors. I figured out they played golf. I went and made tea times at really great courses at the conferences where they were speaking at. And I just pounded on their door and got to know their assistants and uh, uh, eventually got in the door and, and found a good mentor. I, I don't know what I would do without a mentor, whether it's you know wisdom of a book or a person in general. And uh, I try and I try and make them mentors that aren't necessarily people that do exactly what I do. Um, but but for me, the best mentors are the ones who ask me questions that expand my thinking. Not just here's how you do this, but like, have you asked yourself this? And it opens the door. When we were starting to grow, I've got a mentor who uh, who said, I think you're either going to be a one man shop. And that's fine. That's what I am. Or this is going to be much bigger than you think, and you're going to have 100 people working for you. And which one do you want to be? Well, I'd never even thought of that. So uh, great mentors to me are the ones that ask questions that expand my thinking. I think that's the the golden kind of secret is the ability to ask the right questions and not give people necessarily the answers. Let them think through it. Guide them. It sounds like you founded mentors. Yeah. Any specific you want to shout out to? Oh, man, you wouldn't know them. Uh, there's this wonderful man, Sam Chand, in Atlanta, and he helps high-growth people figure out what's next. Um, he, he's Indian, and he's like Yoda. He's not much taller than Yoda, but uh, he's he's a great guy, and he's been a huge mentor to me. Great. What What advice would you give to someone out there, entrepreneur, started a business or thinking about starting a business, what would be you know, one or two key things you might tell them to consider? And is there a, a book or a podcast or something you say, go read this, go listen to that? Uh, I would say if you're considering starting a business, try everything else first. Uh, there is, it, it, this is a wonderful season of startups and entrepreneurs and everybody. But like, I think it was three years ago, you would know better than I would, Chris, but uh, I think three years ago, the, the, the MBA graduates at Stanford, for the first time ever, more of them went into startups than into investment banking. And it never happened. So startup fever is everywhere. It's this there are church plants everywhere. Look at old abandoned Walmarts. I guarantee you you'll find a church that's less than 10 years old. But, uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean it's right. Um, I think uh, entrepreneurs are the crazy people who can step on a rake and get hit in the face nine times in a row and then look at that 10th rake and say, I bet it works out this time. You know, so, <laughs> so if you think it's cool to start a business, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Uh, staff meetings are pretty cool and it starts with just you. I mean, when it was just me, all our staff meetings, we all got along, everything, you know. All your ideas were good. They were all good. Everybody agreed. And, they're, you know, my evaluation was really good, too. But I, I just, the failure rate for small business startups is staggering. 
and uh, I would say try everything else first. Second thing I do, find somebody who is uh, willing to talk to you about what they wish they knew when they were your age. You know, you can start a business at any age, but most people that want to start a business are on the front half of their career. And I have found a great question to ask people is go find an older, wiser guy. I did it with Russ Reynolds, the, the owner and uh, founder of the firm where my search mentor came from. I, I said, Russ, and Russ is a good friend now, and he's um, well on in years. And, and Russ, what do you wish you would have known when you were my age and starting out. I have never had an old, wise person refuse to answer that. Everybody likes to hear that question. Oh, you think I'm wise. You think I'm... So I'd say try everything else first and then go find older, wiser people that will share with you what they wish they would have known. There's something, I think, servant about that where they feel like it's time to maybe pass it on and and share. So uh, that's good. Okay, well, let's, let's maybe go a little more informal. So tell sure. us, what was your first job? I uh, polished my grandmother's silver. <laughs> and she paid me. And I thought, oh, this is cool. So I said, grandmother, do you have any friends with silver? And, I, and so then, of course, I conscripted my younger brothers to, you know, do it at a lower rate and, uh, you know, took my portion off the top. No, bad, bad, bad. There you go. Entrepreneur um, from the beginning. Be- best first job was Paperboy. I hate that kids can't do that anymore. I had to manage my own budget. I had to go buy the papers from the newspaper. I had to collect. I had to keep my own P&L. And, uh, and eventually, I realized the routes were terrible. I had this one dog that would chase me forever. I was his highlight of the day. I mean, like, he waited all day. I couldn't stand the dog. I looked at the routes around me. And I was in maybe fifth grade and realized they were really badly designed. So I bought out my buddies who had the routes around me redistributed everything, got rid of the dog, and kept a denser route and sold off the uh, the new ones back to new people. So <laughs> it's kind of chronic disease of mine. Sounds like it. Uh, all right. If Houston's a food town, so Tex-Mex or barbecue? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> How do you, I've, been out of, I've been in North Carolina for a week. I can't wait to get to something Tex-Mex. There you go. So um, anything you're currently reading, book? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, I try and read about a book a week, and I would say uh, for Houstonians, the the new James Baker biography is awesome, and it, it goes back to I'm 51, so it goes back to a lot of the the days of uh, the Reagan Bush era, and and not like you got to be a Reagan Bush fan to read it, but like the Bakers have been here forever, and it it really is great for knowing your city. And I I don't know anything more important to every great pastor I know is an expert historian on their city. And I would say every great business person I know knows their city in context. So the new James Baker biography is great. The second one that I recommend that's been really good lately is a book called uh, The Storm Before the Calm. Okay. Okay. It was written in 2015, I think. Uh, by a, uh, he teaches geopolitics at I forget what school, but uh, real quick, the theory is uh, about every 40 years, our economy goes through a big uh, disruption, right? And then also about every 70 years, our government goes through a big disruption. So you think like revolutionary to civil war, civil war to new deal, 
Okay, so back in 2015, he said, I don't know what's going to cause it, but somewhere around 2020, this will be the first time these two things have intersected. And here's what you need to know to get ready, and here's how you ride it out, and on the other side of it is great prosperity. That book did more good to me. I mean, it was like, it was voyeuristic. Um, yeah, the storm before the calm. Very good. I'm going to look that one up. So last thing, what do you do in your free time? What, what hobbies do you have? I have seven children, so, yeah, I try and run a little bit. Um, I'm trying to take golf back up. I, I wasted a good bit of my childhood playing, so uh, I'm trying to recover a little bit of that. But uh, Adrian and I spend a lot of time together. She's my best friend, and uh, that, so, you know, whatever she's doing, I'm doing. That's great. William, I want to thank you for coming on the show and, and being a part of this. I uh, loved your insight, and uh, I know the listeners are going to find value in it as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this for our city. I love Houston. Moved here 20 years ago, and somebody said to me, you know, it's a great place to live, but I wouldn't want to visit there. And <laughs> it's, it's so true. It's such a good city, and to have you guys putting good content out for people that are trying to drive growth in our city by starting businesses, that's, that's really good. Thanks for what you're doing. You got it. And there we have it, another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.